It is far easier to keep a current client happy than it is to get a new client. The sales hmm. cycle for a relationship of trust, which is what an attorney-client relationship is, it's a relationship of trust. The sales cycle is very long because they have to trust you and they have to have a reason to trust you. So it is much easier to keep a current client happy. The normal rules would apply, which is be ready, be prepared, do a good job. That means you can't take them for granted. I think lawyers need to hear, and especially young lawyers need to hear, don't take your client's business for granted. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Brant Martin, who's a named partner at Wick Phillips, a 60-plus attorney full-service law firm based in Texas with three offices in multiple cities. Brant has helped oversee its growth for the past 17 years. His practice focuses on complex commercial litigation in federal and state courts, as well as in arbitration. Before, Brant had a wide and varied practice. He practiced corporate and securities law at a Vault 50 law firm, worked as corporate counsel and director of business development at a startup in New York City. Put another way, Brant has really done it all in the law. As he explained to me, I can read an income statement and cross-examine an expert on the substance while incorporating it into an understandable narrative at the same time. Sounds like a great person to talk to on the podcast. <laughs> he started his legal career as a law clerk to Chief Judge Shell of the Eastern District of Texas. Brant's a graduate of SMU Law School, Go Mustangs, where he was the class valedictorian, the Yale Divinity School, Go Bulldogs, and Washington and Lee University, Go Generals. Welcome to the podcast, Brant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So before we discuss your current practice, I'd just love to hear a little bit about you and your path to the law. What made you decide to become a lawyer? Well, it's funny because you know everybody, when they have their resumes and they go through interviews, after you go through a series of interviews, you always identify what is the one question they're going to ask me, right? Right. And on my resume, the one question is always, why did you go to divinity school? Or right. why did you switch from divinity school to the lawyer? No one's ever looked at my resume and not asked that question. And the reason is pretty simple. I come from a family of non-lawyers. We didn't really have any lawyers in my family. And I knew so little. I didn't really know that there were different types of lawyers, right? <laughs> right, right. But I knew from a young age, I was, I was good at writing. I was good at English. I was good at history. I was good at all the traditional things that people say, well, you should be a lawyer, right? right. So I always thought I might be a lawyer. And when I was in college, I was a runner for a law firm just to see what it was like. And mm -hmm. unbeknownst to me, it was a probate firm. And probate lawyers are great. We have probate lawyers and they're wonderful people, but it's not the most exciting thing for a 20-year-old kid to, to look at. And so sure. I started to reevaluate and I thought, well, what else have I always wanted to do? And I love teaching. I love mentoring. So I decided to try uh, to look at graduate schools and I got into a couple of graduate schools in my two majors, one in English, one in Spanish. And my priest in college was a mentor and a friend. And he said, you know, why don't you try a cross-disciplinary program such as Divinity School? You can write on either English and Spanish plus religion. I think he thought I would hear the call. And I said, well, where should I apply? And he said, well, I went to Yale. And I said, well, they don't let guys like me into Yale. You know, I have no name. I have no money. I, I'm just not the type of person that I would associate as, as being uh, allowed into an Ivy League school. But I applied and I got in and, and got some money to go. So I went. And I truly enjoyed it. I'm glad I did it. The skills mm -hmm. are way more similar to practicing law than most people would be willing to admit. Sure. Uh, and I can get into that. Yeah. The skills are very similar. 
But I did quickly figure it out I, that I did not want to be an academic, that life was not for me for various reasons. So I was running out of money. I accelerated the program. I finished early and I came back home. I live in Texas now. That's where I was originally from. And I started interviewing for quote unquote real jobs and interviewing for scholarships to law school. And mm-hmm. whichever one of these happens, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I got a scholarship to SMU that really changed my life. And, and when I got to SMU and I got into my first semester of my 1L year, it was like the, I don't want to say the heavens open, but it just fit. I mm. got it. Uh, civil procedure, you know, the rules based later on evidence, all of the structure, the construct, the way in which I saw the world, mm-hmm. it was like this had been waiting for me all along. And mm. so I knew that's where I, I belonged. And I emailed my advisor at Yale after my first semester at law school and my grades came back and I did pretty well. And I emailed him and I said, hey, you know, professor, look at this. And he he was funny. He emailed me back and he goes, Brant, not all of us are called to the ministry. And I thought <laughs> that was probably your calling. So he knew before I did. I, I personally find that fascinating because we probably couldn't be more different, right? Like I'm a Jewish kid from Virginia and <laughs> we have a very similar background in that I also went to divinity school because I also thought I might find the Jewish equivalent of a calling to become like my mother is a rabbi. And I went to graduate school thinking, huh, maybe I'll be an academic, maybe I'll be a rabbi. And I got to the University of Chicago Divinity School. It helped me a lot in terms of my writing and thinking. And I learned very quickly that I did not want to become a rabbi and I did not want to become a PhD in religion. And so law school was my calling as well. So I think that's fascinating that we found each other through the internet. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Very similar stories. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your answer to that interview question when someone says, uh, why Divinity School? Because I've got that question too. How do you think the two are similar and and how do they guide you? I I think the the biggest similarities are, are quite evident. Number one, you're dealing with people on a daily basis that are in crisis points in their lives. Right. So they have probably never dealt with a situation like this, or if they have, it's very rare, whereas it's a part of your everyday life. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is you are trained to explicate sometimes ancient texts Mm -hmm. and figure out. And then there's the constant debate. Is it what the original author meant? Is that what we should follow? Or does this change with the times? How do you adapt it to modern times, et cetera? The third piece of it is similar to the first in that it's pastoral counseling. You're dealing with people and oftentimes having to tell them what they need to hear rather Mm -hmm. than what they want to hear and doing it in an empathetic way, but a way that deals with the reality of the situation that they're facing. And I find as a commercial trial lawyer, which is how I describe myself, you know, there are oftentimes when somebody comes to you and they have outsize ambitions about what a case is either worth if you're on the plaintiff side or outsize ambitions on the fact that they're, you know, as pure as the driven snow Mm -hmm. on the defense side. And either way, you have to basically educate them about what the process looks like, this process that's foreign to them, but that they've heard about. So they all have opinions about it. And you have to kind of walk them through that process. And then the last piece of it is just like telling a sermon, you got to tell a narrative. You have a narrative, you have a story, you have a point, you better have a point, (laughs) you have a theme, you have a theory, 
and you have an audience that you're trying to get them to a certain place. Hmm. Now, it's in the advocacy aspect of it on, in, under the law rather than kind of the immutable truth aspect of it, whether it's uh, in Judaism or Christianity, Islam or any of the other religions where you may be a minister of some type. But mm-hmm. it's a narrative and, and you're trying to convince people of the rightness of your narrative. That's fascinating. I wish I had your answer when I was interviewing for law firms, because that's a good one. I also, I don't want to sort of paper over the practice tip that you just gave, which is read your resume and figure out what is the question or questions that you're going to get. And I I think for law students listening, spend the summer figuring out what is the question you're going to get and what's the answer. I imagine you would give that same recommendation. I would. In fact, I gave that recommendation yesterday. I had a conversation with a law student who was in this program that we give scholarships to, and, and she has an interview next week with this law firm. It's not my law firm, so I have no dog in the hunt. And she reached out to me to say, can you help me with interview tips? And that was one of the tips that I gave her. And then the other tips, if you're looking for tips that I would give yeah, please. to your law students is obviously, but you'd be surprised at how many people don't do this, research the firm figure out what they do and figure out whether or not you would be a good fit. And then third, and this is what I tell law students all the time, don't assume you know what you want to do. (laughs) My favorite story on this is probably not a good reflection on me, but (laughs) my second year of law school, the economy was not quite in the shambles that we're in now, but it was pretty rough. And so we had on-campus interviews and I got a a bunch of interviews and I went into this one interview and it was for the big firm that I ended up working for. And the gray-haired, grizzled veteran partner that they sent to do these interviews because it was his alma mater, he looks at me and he gives me the standard. So what do you want to do? What type of law do you want to practice? And I looked at him and I said, what are you paying people to do? And he looked at me and he goes, that's the best answer to that question I've ever heard. <laughs> and I said, look, I, I don't know. And I know I don't know. Yeah. If you tell me that this is going to fit my skills and abilities, I'll give it a shot. Now, unfortunately, I think my current resume probably reflects the fact that it took me a while, hmm. even after I graduated, to find what I was supposed to be doing. I, I did several different areas of the law before I found almost 20 years ago now, what I wanted to do. And I'm very blessed because I love my job. I love what I do every day. I love what I get to do every day. I view it as that, that I'm very blessed that way, but Mm. it didn't happen immediately. So I would tell your students, don't think that you know what you want to do. That is a privilege of youth, I think, to think that they know everything. But the older we get, and I know I sound like an old man saying, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> but the things your parents told you are true. You mm-hmm. don't know. And your career, hopefully, will be long. Your life, hopefully, will be long. And you've got the chance, especially when you're young, to try some different things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I love about that answer also is I get a lot of students who ask me, you know, I know I want to do X. I know I want to be an environmental lawyer that focuses on this issue, and I want to have a family with a picket fence and a boy and a girl in Portland, Oregon. And my response is, first, see what are the things that people want you to do. Then once you have your options, then we can have that conversation. And it's not the idea that you shouldn't be focused on what you want to do. That's good. That gives you a star to walk toward. But 
you also have to be flexible and see what life comes at you. And that's shown, as you said, by your CV. I think that's fantastic. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about what you do as a trial lawyer, and, and you clearly like it a lot. So my question is two parts, which is never a good thing for a trial lawyer to ask, but I'll <laughs> ask it in two parts. So part one is, what do you do? What kind of cases do you work on? But also, what do you do every day? What kind of tasks do you work on? And what kind of skills do you have to flex on a regular basis? Sure. So to answer the first question, what do I do? Uh, I describe myself as a commercial trial lawyer. And most people would describe me as a commercial litigator, probably. And I certainly am that. But my own practice has evolved over the years where I go to trial or go to court more often than perhaps some other commercial litigators. Hmm. Now, I certainly do not go as often as some of your previous guests that are, you know, assistant U.S. attorneys or right. the, the guy that works at the JAG. Hmm. You know, I'm not saying that we're in trial all the time. But I certainly have tried more cases than most people of my vintage that are in the commercial realm. So my cases are usually somewhere dealing with the way I describe it at a cocktail party would be companies suing companies. Mm -hmm. And I'm the courthouse guy. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm the I pick juries. I talk to judges. I tell the stories. I analyze the cases ahead of time. So it's depositions, it's hearings, it's summary judgment motions, it's trials. I practiced in courts all over the country. I am licensed in Texas, but I've had sometimes, depending on the year, just as many trials in California as I hmm. do in Texas or just as many trials in Oklahoma as I do in Texas. Hmm. I tend to be hired by clients that want that are hiring me for kind of the trial aspect of what I do. Right. And part of my background probably falls into that because I did spend six years as a plaintiff's attorney. And I did everything then. I did med mal cases. I did car wrecks. I did personal injury cases. So I had a lot of on-the-job learning in sure. that job sure. that allowed me to really learn what it's like on a day-to-day -day basis in a courtroom that judges really do notice, right? Hmm. The judge notices if you know how to impeach a witness with a prior inconsistent statement. Right. Judge also notices if you don't know how to do it. Sure. And if you have lawyers at each table in the courtroom and one of them knows how to do it and the other one doesn't know how to do it, I'm not saying there's going to be a bias there, but there's certainly going to be a credibility issue that mm -hmm. may work to your advantage because sure. the judge is going to look at you and she may say, this guy knows what he's doing. Right. Yeah. It's a huge benefit. And I've seen it on the clerking side. You can tell the people who are good in court and have experience in court. I guess my two follow-ups to that, and we'll circle back to the skills, but I have two follow-ups. The first is you know, in a world where trials are much harder to get candidly. And I saw that as a law clerk. I saw that as a associated, a big law firm in Washington that also saw itself as a trial first firm. Yep. A lot doesn't go to trial anymore. So I Correct. guess my question is if a lot doesn't get to go to trial anymore, how do you get to go to trial? I particularly have a lot of clients that like to go to trial. I, again, I, you know, everybody has a different, when you develop a book of business, when you develop a client base, you will find, and I can talk about that because my client base is often different than some of my partner's client bases, hmm. even though we do the same thing. And even though some of them are as good, if not better than I am at the actual trial work, for some reason, the way that my client base has developed, it has been people that are not afraid of the courthouse, hmm. that are not willing to just settle to get it done with, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the things that you hear about on why you don't have trials, all the right. things that mediators tell you when you go to mediation, oh, right. you know, this is the last time you're going to be able to control your case, et cetera. For one reason or another, I, I've had clients over the years that have said, you know, either we fight this on principle, those people mm-hmm. do exist, or we don't settle these cases because of the effect it will have on the rest of our business. Sure. So therefore, we want to hire someone that is not afraid to go to the courthouse. We mm-hmm. want to hire somebody that's not afraid to go in front of the judge. We want to hire somebody who knows how to tell our story. And that's a key piece to it as well, is you have to develop these relationships over time and have those relationships with clients hopefully be deep, right? Mm-hmm. I understand their business and they see that. And so they understand and they have confidence that I'm going to be able to tell their story to a jury so that the jury understands what they do. And that goes to your second question, right? Your second right. question was, what do you do every day? Yeah. I've heard you ask that in previous podcasts, and it, it makes me laugh because the way I ask that in depositions is, and that's always one of the questions I ask, which is, sure. I don't care what your title is. What is it you actually do? And if the witness won't answer that question, if they're just being cagey or they don't like me or they don't trust me, mm. I say, if I followed you around all day, what would I see? <laughs> That's a great version. I'm going to use that for future podcasts. It just, I, I tell my associates all the time, a lot of times get down to the basics, right? right? If I followed you around all day, what would I see? And to answer that for me, what sure. you would see me do is either taking depositions or appearing at hearings for my clients. Often, if I'm not doing one of those, you would see me talking to my associates, mentoring them helping them run the dockets for my clients. I try to push as much work down as I can so that Mm -hmm. my associates get the experience necessary. And so a lot of times there'll be people kind of just coming in and out of my office saying, hey, remember this case, this is what's happening. This is what they're asking for. What do you want to do? So there's a lot of interactions in the office where we're Mm -hmm. talking about different cases. And then you'll see me preparing for the aforementioned depositions in in hearings, reading cases, reading documents. I don't read all of the documents anymore. I usually have them cold before they get to me. Sure. But if they get to me, I'm assuming they're important enough for me to look at everything. Mm -hmm. So anything that gets to my desk, I try to put my hands on every page. Uh, in preparing for a deposition or preparing for a hearing, certainly preparing for a trial, sure. I put my hands on every exhibit and I flash them up on the screen and, and I say, what what are we doing with this? Who's our sponsor? What do we need it for? And what element does it go to? Where does it fit mm. within the elements chart, which is something that I, I have it for every case that goes to trial well before the trial. So that's kind of what you'd see me do. I, I get down to the nitty gritty when I'm the one speaking into the microphone. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm not the one speaking into the microphone, managing the associates and their in efforts to manage the docket. And then the other parts of my time are firm administration. I don't mm-hmm. do a whole lot of that, depending on what my role is in the firm at any sure. given time. But there's firm administration aspects of it. And then business development, which is a big part of how we built the firm. Yeah. And we'll talk about, and I want to make sure we save some time to talk about that. I, I do want to follow up a little bit on the, what you do every day. Tell me more about the elements chart, for, especially for somebody who's never gotten ready for trial. I think I know what you're talking about, but I imagine there are people listening who don't. It's really easy. It's really simplistic, but it works for me. And if any of my associates 
hear this podcast, they're going to start laughing because they all know what the elements chart is. The elements chart is exactly that. It is on a piece of paper. It is on hard copy. It starts on a computer, but it is on a hard copy. And on the left-hand side, it is cause of action number one, you know, breach of contract. And then mm-hmm. A, existence of a contract. B, right. And so it goes down to each of the four elements. And then the second column over is what documents we have prior to trial that support that particular element. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the third one over is who's sponsoring that or who's going to testify about it. Whether or not it's agreed to, I don't care. Why is that document going to be in my trial? Right. And what is it going to say? And how does it support the element that is over there on the left? Mm-hmm. And then the fourth column is any particular comments about that document, whether it hurts, whether it helps, mm-hmm. if there's any uh, what I call bear traps that are in that document that we mm-hmm. need to look out for, if there's any unresolved objections, if there are, how are we going to get around them? Right. So that's what an elements chart is. It's very simplistic. You know, at the end of the day, once something gets all the way down to trial, it can be a very complicated subject matter, but by the nature of what we do and the way we do it with the jury system, you have to be able, and the court has to be able to put it into terms that the jury can understand mm-hmm. and can decide, right? right? So they have to be asked a series of questions. Was there a contract? Right. Was it breached? Right. Yeah, and the subject matter, I've, I've done a lot of mergers and acquisitions fraud cases, right? For the buyer mm-hmm. and the seller. Hey, you sold me something. And it wasn't what you said it was. Sure. And I've been on both sides of those cases several times. And so no matter how many commas or zeros are in the number that was in the purchase price, Mm -hmm. it oftentimes comes down to who lied, right? Right. Who said this was X when it was actually Y? Right. And how do you get that across to a jury? Right. And the reality is the jury, who are often not trained lawyers, right? They need it to be simple. Another word for simple that I actually think has less of a pejorative context, right, is distilled, right? You have distilled it to the essence of the case. And then I would imagine it's just your job as a trial lawyer to make sure you convey everything on that chart. (laughs) No, that's, you're hundred percent right. And I appreciate the correction because I want to be clear about this. I've never had a jury that I thought was stupid. I've never had anybody serve on a jury that I thought was stupid. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Hmm. All the juries that I have had uh, to a person, to me, paid attention to their job, took it seriously, and did the best they could to make the right decision. Even when I lost, I never questioned their good faith. And I really think that's a strength of our jury system. But distilled, yes, you have to be able to explain a case in five minutes regardless of whether you're talking to a jury or talking to the judge. Mm -hmm. If you're in particular jurisdictions that have like a true rolling wheel docket, the judge may have never heard of your case before. We have some of those jurisdictions down here Mm -hmm. where you get a different judge every single motion, right? Well, if you have that, you better be able to describe that case and you better be able to do it quickly. Yeah, for sure. I I had one of those state court trial cases when I was uh, an associate and it was a big change. As opposed to, you know, in a case where you have the same judge, our goal was to develop a long-term relationship, even if it was through the papers, with that judge. It's a totally different ballgame when you don't know what judge you're going to get the second you walk into a courtroom. Yeah, it is very different. And I prefer the type of system that we have in my my home county, which is that the same judge stays on the case because I prefer that institutional memory. Yeah, absolutely. 
if you're in one of those kind of rolling wheel docket jurisdictions, you better be ready and you better know. I've had lawyers show up in cases in those particular jurisdictions that didn't know ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So they thought the judge had read everything. And I'm like, this judge got this three minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. It's a different ballgame. The other question I wanted to follow up on was depositions. So I'll tell you, I think that's one of the most common questions I get from former students because it's the first thing they often get when they started a big law firm is they either have to take a deposition or prepare someone to take a deposition. And I get an email. I just got one from one of my best students ever a couple weeks ago. And she said, no one in law school ever told me about a deposition. What am I supposed to do to prepare this partner? So what's your preparation process for a deposition and how would you recommend someone who's new to depositions think about that task? Uh, Absolutely. And I think, again, a thread from one of your previous podcasts, that is something that if I was going to, if I was the czar of legal education, that's part Mm -hmm. of what I would change. I think we do a great job training lawyers for the most part, but there are certain things on the day-to-day blocking and tackling that I think we could do a better job of preparing law students for. My depositions, the first place we start, usually if it's a big case, we actually have an elements chart already Hmm. uh, developed on that. So you start with the elements chart again with everything. What do I need to prove and how am I going to get that out of this person, right? Right. If you don't have an elements chart or if you're kind of already past that or if it's an adverse party, you kind of know what you're going to try to get out of them. Right. So the most important thing for me in any deposition is the documents. There, there's an old saying that the people that taught me how to try cases always said, which is people lie. Documents <laughs> don't lie. Right. Hmm. So if I can put the right documents in front of the right witness and get them to testify about those documents, I will either get what I need to prove my case Or I will elicit from them what they're going to say about my case that might hurt me. Right. And, you know, willful ignorance is never a good strategy. (laughs) Absolutely. I go through as many of the relevant documents as I can. So the process is usually an associate that's on the case. And I usually only have one associate on my cases. The associate will have gone through the production in the case and Mm -hmm. culled the documents that we might want to ask this particular witness about. The associate also prepares an outline. Now, to do that, I usually direct them towards previous deposition outlines that I have done. So they Mm -hmm. know what I'm looking for. They know how I structure my depositions. They know the types of questions that I ask. So between the documents and previous outlines, they will develop a preliminary deposition outline for that particular witness. So I usually get the documents and the deposition outlined several days before a deposition. Mm -hmm. And I will go through that. I will mark it up. I will do my own handwritten notes and I'll either change the outline myself or I'll change it even in my own handwriting up until the moment I'm walking in the door. Mm -hmm. And I've never had a deposition go directly according to script. That's never a good idea. And if that happens, I would tell your students, that means you're not listening to the answers. You know, a good deposition to me, it's like a a really good piece of jazz music. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes all over the place. But if you're good or you're lucky, or if it's a really good case, there's a common thread that you can look back on it and is running through it. Mm -hmm. But you've got to listen to the answers and you have to be willing to pivot in the middle of it. And then while I'm taking the deposition, that's all happening, but I'm going through my outline and I'm marking through 
the different sections of it to make sure that I've either either covered everything I'm going to cover, right, or I've covered what I think is important. And then towards the end, when I feel like I'm wrapping up, I will go back through it. I'll take a break and I'll go back through it and I'll make sure that, you know, I've, I haven't missed anything right. that I'm really going to kick myself later for not asking. Again, you make it sound so straightforward, but having done it, I know that it takes a ton of work, a lot of mess, a lot of thinking, a lot of questions that don't get asked. Yep. Uh, a lot. Of, I mean, I'm sure the, de- the the outlines that you get that you mark up. There's a marked up version that your associate also had to mark up and sure. edit themselves. It's a huge process, uh, and I don't think everybody knows that. At least in the federal system, depositions are typically seven hours of questioning. You can ask a lot of questions in seven hours. Yeah, you can go pretty far afield if you want, <laughs> and you know, depending on the case, that that does happen. But what I try to stress to people that are learning the process, and that's the other thing. I was licensed in 97, right? I've been doing this a long time. So I can talk about it now, but it's not like this was, you know, born whole out of the head of Zeus. I mean, it (laughs) took me a long time to learn this and, and to distill my own process. I promise you, I've got partners of mine that are equally as good, if not better than me, that their process would probably look different in mm-hmm. some form or fashion. But that's my process and it works for me. But I, yeah, I, I tell the associates, if you get stuck and if you really don't know what else would I ask this person, right? That's when, in your words, you distill it. Like go more basic. Mm-hmm. What were you doing on such and such date? When you got this email that I'm going to ask you about, what computer were you on? What house were you in? Where were you? And that can lead in a lot of unexpected directions if you listen to the answers. But you have to listen. That's amazing. It's also good practice for anybody listening who wants to start a podcast. It's uh, just a distilled deposition, I guess. Although I get to ask the questions, which is kind of fun. Uh, I want to move on and talk a little bit about founding your own law firm, because I think that's something that makes you a little bit different than maybe some of the others in the profession. And obviously you had, as you said, a varied first decade of your practice, but you and your partners have built something from very small to very large. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how that all came about and also lessons learned from that experience. Absolutely. And I want to be very clear because again, some of my partners may listen to this. I was not one of the original founders. That was Brian Wick and Todd Phillips who decided to found the firm in 2004. And for that act of their bravery, I owe them, even for them doing that. They did call me when they first started it. And I was still a plaintiff's attorney at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of big cases going on that I thought were close to settling. So it was not the right time for me to make a jump. Sure. Uh, So later when I had those cases done and it was the right time for me to make the jump, I was the fifth lawyer that was here. So I'm one of the old guys. I'm Mm -hmm. certainly one of the senior partners. And I I think that both Brian and Todd and Andy Gould, who was another one of the, the first of the five of us, we would all consider ourselves that we built this uh, together, but I, mm-hmm. I didn't found it. And I want to make sure that Brian and Todd know that I gave them the right props. <laughs> they had come straight from the big firms. I had taken a couple of detours and we all thought that, you know, we were in our early thirties and we all were, I guess, just dumb enough to think that we could do it on our own. And we worked very hard. And you asked about mistakes. In the first 10 years, we made a million of them. We made bad hires. 
We made strategic decisions that were, you know, difficult or that we had to either undo or overcome. Mm -hmm. But we always had faith. One, you have to have faith in your own abilities. You have to think, I can do this. And you've got to have confidence in yourself, which in a risk-averse profession, it's not always as easy to come by. So you've got to have confidence in your abilities. and, And that's almost twofold. You have to have confidence in your abilities to do the job. Because if you're not providing quality legal services, no one is going to hire you. Hmm. And if they do hire you and you don't provide quality legal services, they won't hire you again. And so it'll be a very short trip for you. Uh, And then you also have to have the confidence that you can go out and get business. And you have to know that you have the ability to do that, even if you don't necessarily know what that looks like when you decide to do it. So two kind of quick, I guess, tips that I would give there is, you know, over the years we have had, as we've grown this, and like I said, I was number five and now we're up to 75 lawyers. I got an updated headcount this morning. As we were doing this over the years, we had friends of ours call from the big firms, our colleagues in law school and the people that went big firm like we did, but stayed big firm. And they would call and they'd say, hey, I really want to kind of come do what you do. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, that was 10 years ago. Like, I mean, you haven't been practicing the art of developing business and developing relationships. And that's not everything because you still have to be a really good lawyer. But that's a different aspect of the business that they don't teach you at the big firms Mm -hmm. often. Uh, And often they don't want to teach you that, right? Because they don't need that. They have the business. They don't need you to go out and get more business. And so it's just a different skill set that you have to really develop over time. And there were many times in the first five years, definitely, where we would pitch a client and they would say, I just want somebody with some gray hair. I mean, you guys Hmm. seem great, but you're young. And how do I know that you can actually do this? So it's a slow sales cycle. And then the other aspect of it that I think was very important that I realized you don't make your money and you don't make a living and you certainly don't build a firm off of one case or two Hmm. cases or one case per client. You build a firm over long-term relationships. So the most important thing you can do with any client or prospective client, in my experience, and I don't pretend to, you know, be the oracle on this, perhaps other people would disagree, but in my experience, be honest with them. If somebody comes to you with a prospective matter and they're a prospective client and they might have a bunch of money or they may have a big company and you were thinking, great, I can't wait to get this person as a client. You might be tempted to say, you've got a great case. Right. When the lawyer in you knows it's not a good case. Right. They'd be wasting their money. Um, It it is not infrequent that I tell a client, this is not something you want to waste your money on. This Hmm. is not something that the economics of it don't make sense. And I can tell you more often than not, when that is the initial conversation, those people come back Hmm. and they say, that guy was honest with me. And that guy spoke the truth to me, even though it was against his own self-interest in the short term. Well, that's true because I could have made money off of that file. Sure. But there's no long-term relationship there because you're going to end up with, in retail parlance, an unhappy customer. Right. You're not going to come back. So is that what you would say? You know, there's, it's one thing to get clients in the door, right? And it's another, and it sounds to me 
probably more important for your practice to keep the clients you have happy and being return clients. How do you keep happy clients? Is it just being honest? Are there other things you think about to build those relationships, both professionally, but also just more naturally long-term relationships? Sure. Yes. First of all, the premise of your question is correct. It is far easier to keep a current client happy than it is to get a new client. The sales Mm -hmm. cycle for a relationship of trust, which is what an attorney-client relationship is, it's a relationship of trust. The sales cycle is very long because they have to trust you and they have to have a reason to trust you. So it is much easier to keep a current client happy. The normal rules would apply, which is be ready, be prepared, do a good job. That means you can't take them for granted. I think lawyers need to hear, and especially young lawyers need to hear, don't take your client's business for granted. You will run into lawyers, or I have run into lawyers in my career, that their attitude toward their clients often is, oh, you're lucky to have me as your lawyer, right? Hmm. That's the wrong attitude to have. The attitude you need to have is, how can I serve this person? And I'm lucky to have them as my client. So I'm going to do the best job I possibly can. And I know that sounds really obvious, probably to your audience, but you would be surprised at how prevalent the other attitude is towards Mm -hmm. clients that, you know, oh, I'm here. I've got my law degree. I've got this really nice office. I work for this huge firm with this great name. You shouldn't have anything to complain about. Well, your client's trying to make payroll right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to keep the lights on. They've got a lawsuit against them or that they're bringing against somebody else that is incredibly important to them. So if they feel like they're being short-armed in any way, Mm -hmm. they're going to be unhappy in some respect. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do differently over the years, and I'm lucky because my partners and I are all very aligned in this, is our clients know that we care. Our clients, you know, we have a rule. They get a call or an email back within 24 hours unless there's some reason not to. And even then, Mm -hmm. the email can be, I'm really sorry, I'm in trial. Can I call you back? Even those small touches make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect that helped us build the firm, I think, was as we were building it, we put in a lot of effort and a lot of unbilled time to learn what our clients actually did and what it looked Mm. like. We asked that question, if I followed you around all day, what would it look like? Mm. Because if you understand your client's business, then you're going to understand what their objectives are. And if you understand what their objectives are, you can help direct the course of a particular case or a particular transaction, right? Mm. You can say, okay, I could do this. I could go file a motion to compel and make them look really bad in front of the judge, right? But that's not going to accomplish. And sometimes that is what's going to accomplish an objective, right? But sometimes it's not. And so you have to know what is it you want out of this and let me help you get there using the most cost-effective and efficient means possible. Yeah. I mean, that I don't think it's obvious. And I think a lot of lawyers think I am a problem solver in the abstract. And candidly, right? That's kind of how we have to teach it because we're teaching problems in the abstract, not to sort of pat law professors on the back or anything, but law is not practiced in the abstract. And the best lawyers that I ever worked for were also the ones who said, if I know the client's business, they are way more likely to hire me as a lawyer. 
And if they've hired me, I better learn their business because that's how I'm going to stay their lawyer. And it sounds like that's really helped your you and your firm grow, which is fantastic. It, it's a massive advantage. And it's one that a lot of lawyers don't take advantage of. Because, hmm. And I think a lot of people, you get into the big firm life and you feel the pressure to bill a bunch of hours because you want to hit whatever quota they say doesn't exist. And instead, what has helped us build our firm is I'm not going to worry necessarily about billing that time that I went out there on a site visit, right? Mm -hmm. Where I was talking to the operations manager, or I went out there to one of my, one of my partners that we had a case that involved coal mines, right? He went out there and put on the hard hat with the flashlight and was in there looking at a coal mine. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of times that I went out to, to clients that were in businesses and you're like, you look around and you're like, I can't believe I went to school for 10 years to do this. And I'm probably not going to bill this, so I'm not getting paid for it. But at the end of the day, you know, my kids don't go to school on one case. My mm-hmm. kids go to school on a 20-year relationship. And so keeping right. them happy is about knowing what is it they need. Because at the end of the day, we're a cost center, right? I mean, it, it's very exceptional cases where I'm a revenue generator for a client. Right, right. And you have to recognize that. That's great. And one of the cool things I've learned about your firm in doing a little bit of research is the growth and that you do have associates who you give a lot of work. What would you recommend to those people to stand out and do good work and get started in the profession? I love that question. I would say the number one attribute that is going to help you the most is one that other of your guests have brought up. And I think they called it intellectual curiosity. Hmm. That is a, a massive advantage for any lawyer. I think it's wonderful. We all have outside interests. And I think it's wonderful if you're involved in a particular cause or you like politics, right? Or you like outdoorsy things, et cetera. But never close yourself off to learning about any number of things. At the risk of being a mile wide and an inch deep, a lot of times I will allow myself to go down rabbit holes of you know, scientific articles in National Geographic that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with my normal interests or backgrounds. But there's something about it that triggered something that I knew from a case or from a client. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I'll pass that along. So intellectual curiosity is the number one thing. The second is truly a work ethic. We don't consider ourselves a sweatshop and I don't think we are, but you've got to get the work done. I can tell you that an associate that stands out to me is one that wants to be a sponge and Hmm. wants to learn as much as they can and knows that they don't necessarily know everything. And I want to be very clear. I'm not saying I know everything, right? But about the practice of law, I do know more than a a summer associate does. Sure. And I know more than almost all, if not all of the associates, right? So come to me and ask. I love, and most lawyers I know love, talking and mentoring and teaching. But the recipient of that has to have an open mind and have an open heart. They have to understand that they don't know everything. Hmm. And when I've had difficulties with associates in the past, it has usually been because they weren't listening when I was telling them which way to go, right? Mm -hmm. Go this way and find the answer. And then work hard to find that answer. I put in the hours, all of my colleagues, and I guarantee you all of my partners, we did put in the hours. We Mm -hmm. paid our dues. And I know that's not a very popular concept sometimes that you have to pay your dues, Mm -hmm. but it is the truth. If you are going to build a business, 
you know, there are times when you have to be there in the middle of the night reviewing documents and you would rather be somewhere else. Yes, right. we have yeah. all done that. A hundred percent. It's funny. I often get students who say to me, well, how do I do it the first time? I've never done it before. How do I do it? And my refrain is, well, you know, every pilot needs to land a plane for the first time. They just tend not to tell the passengers while they're in the back. <laughs> but what you, there's a follow on to that, which your answer makes me think of is pilots judge themselves by how many hours of flight time they have. Right. Right. That, and it, I have seen that, that the more hours of flight time you have, or in the law, just the more hours you doing things, you've seen more and you may not gain better judgment, but you certainly have better experience and your judgment is affected by that. So I, I think there's an element of that. You're absolutely right. That's hard to see when you're on the other side, right? The hardest part is seeing it in the moment and thinking, all I have to do is read a thousand documents and figure out what the six, I mean, that's a hard task to give somebody who spent a lot of money to go to law school. Here's a thousand documents. What's the most important one? I've been there. It's hard. I get it. And I get the impatience that a recent graduate or a young associate might have to say, I want to get in there and, you know, I want to start mixing it up, et cetera. Well, yeah, but if you get in there and mix it up and you fall on your face or you trip over your shoelaces, it's not going to be nearly as exciting. So come with me to a few hearings, watch how I do it, go with a different partner who might do it a little bit differently mm -hmm. and develop your own voice. That's one of the other things that I always tell our associates is everybody's got to develop their own voice. And you do that. And I wouldn't call it even baby steps. I would call it incremental steps, right? Mm. Go and argue a motion for continuance, right? It shouldn't be that hard, but there is something about standing at that podium for the first time and saying, good morning, your honor. My mm -hmm. name is, and right. you're going to feel your voice crack, right? You're mm -hmm. going to feel your leg shake and you're going to think, why is my leg shaking? This is a motion for continuance. This is silly, but it's because you put in all of that work. Sometimes you borrowed all of that money to go to law school, right? And you have an idea in your head that it looks like it does on TV. Well, those are actors, right? <laughs> delivering lines. And they're really good at delivering lines. If you watch an experienced attorney, in front of a court on a relatively easy motion, they should make it look relatively easy. Hmm. It will not be that easy for you. And so when an older attorney is telling you, hey, here's how I would do this, I would tell your students, listen to what they have to say, because even if they end up being wrong, you will have learned something from the process. Well, look, I often end these by asking for a piece of advice, but I feel like we've got so much advice over the last hour. So I'm going to ask a slightly different version. I'm going to throw a, a curveball at you, which is I'd love to hear your advice for those of us who are more junior or coming up in the profession about how to both be a lawyer and be a person. I know you have three children and built your law firm while your children were growing up, which I can only imagine presented challenges. You're in trial, you're traveling. What's your advice on being a lawyer and being a human being? I would tell you, it's a great question and I'm glad you asked it because it's incredibly important. And some self-disclosure here, I think that there were certainly times in my life when I let my priorities get out of whack whether it was in relation to my wife or my kids. And there's times when, you know, there's always going to be times when I'm in trial. Yeah, you're not going to be able to reach me. I mean, that's, that's just because it's all encompassing, right? Right. But there's other times where I let myself not have my core values aligned all the time. And in our profession, I don't think I'm alone in that. That's why I feel comfortable saying it. Yeah. In our profession, which is a high stress, high energy profession, that's going to happen. 
that's why you see so many issues that lawyers have, whether it be with uh, divorce rates or addiction or anything like that, that you read about in all of the trade magazines, those are very real. So what I would tell people to do is, you know, as you develop as a lawyer, identify your core values and the core values that are yours alone, not even necessarily those that are the core values of your parents or your mentors or your professors. You will find yourself deviating in one way or another from what you are always taught. And once you find those core values and you can identify that as being your true self, then organize your time and organize your life in service of those core values, right? Hmm. The most important thing in my life is my family, my wife and kids, 100%. My nuclear family is, is the most important thing. I have a large extended family. They're very important. My wife has a large extended family. They're very important. But, you know, that there's four people, five including me, that are the focus and really the focus of 90% of why I do what I do. The second most important thing to me, honestly, is my law firm. This business that I built with my trusted partners and my friends that I feel blessed to have them in my life. There are people that are listening to this podcast that I'm sure would look at me and say, well, where's church? Where's God? You went to divinity school, et cetera. And those are all very important parts of my life. But to be honest, the way I've ordered my life is that I'm a husband and a father first, and I'm a lawyer second. I love both of those things, and I order my life around them. Hmm. So if I was going to try to extrapolate that into generalized advice, it would be my way is not the way for everybody, but everybody has a way. Everybody has their own way. Find that way and nurture it. In the same way that I teach associates how to be effective advocates in court, everybody has their own voice. If Professor Perlin tried to go to court and sound like me, besides the accent problems, it would be a disaster, right? right. Or if I tried 100%. to go to court and sound like you or try to teach a class like you, it would be a disaster mm -hmm. because that's not my voice. I have my own way of living that it took me some years to get there and to embrace. But once you embrace it, that balance does actually come. And there will be times when you will get out of balance temporarily, right? Things will happen. Bad things happen or good things happen. Now, you'll make money one year. You won't make money one year. Uh, a case will go good. A case will go bad. A witness mm -hmm. will go south on you. And if you always are able to come back to what is your way and what you embrace about yourself, then I think you can thrive in this profession if you really love it. Again, that was Brant Martin, a Texas-based commercial trial lawyer at the law firm Wick Phillips. I'm really grateful to Brant for his candor about what he does and tips on how he does it so well. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find all past episodes and sign up for future episodes at howilawyer.com. I can be reached at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again to Brant. Thanks for listening and have a great week.